This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and tell a friend to help them find Out of Water also. Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. I am your host, Mark Lautenschlager, and joining me today, as he always does, is our pastor of education, Reverend Sam Kastensmith. And Sam and I are welcoming you to yet another in the series he gave us stories based on the parables that Jesus told. This is part 11, week 11 of the series. And today we come to Matthew chapter 25 and the parable of the 10 virgins, which despite its provocative title, the uh, is it's about a wedding feast. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm just saying, you know, normally when there's, you know, it's like the you know, parable of 10 virgins, so it's like, yeah, it's about a wedding feast. Yeah, yeah. people pay attention. Um, Sam, when Jesus decided to tell this story, the custom as I understand it, and, I, and you probably know more about this than I do, but the way I understand the custom is that the uh, the groom would go to the home of the bride, which is where the ceremony would take place. Then the groom mm-hmm. and basically the entire wedding party would return to wherever the bride and the bridegroom were going to live together, whether that was either their own place, if they had their own place, or if they were going to live with the groom, the bridegroom's parents for a while, they would come to that family home. But that it was tradition for some of the younger women or younger members of the of the family or the friend group or whatever, that's why they're the ten virgins. They're going to be younger females, mm-hmm. that they would go to greet them so that they would be greeted as they came up, you know, and sort of celebrated. And then they would go into the wedding feast that would last for as much as a week. Is that kind of how it worked? Yeah. And, and the way that this is going, Jesus, the, the first century wedding feast, which lasts, you know, for quite a while, is actually perfect in describing the way that Jesus speaks about a second coming. And so the way that this would work is a year before you actually get married – you would have you know somebody who comes to the father of the bride and works out a dowry like he's he's going to pay this this father or the father's going to pay depending on which way it works a price so that the daughter is given to the husband and usually they would go into an engagement season of between 6 months to a year which they where they were married they were committed to one another you couldn't date anyone else you certainly you know you were supposed to be chaste during that time mm-hmm. But you belong to one another essentially. And during that time, the bridegroom pledged that he was going to prepare a place and get a household in order for the bride to come live in. And that was kind of the goal. And so when you're thinking through the Gospels, when Jesus says things like, I go to prepare a place for you, that's very much in line with some of this imagery that we're seeing here as a wedding. And so the groom would go and prepare a place and then on on when the wedding came – the the groom would leave the place that he has created, the home that he has created, and he's coming to the house of the bride. So when you're thinking second coming, there it is again. He's going to the place where the bride is located. Well, who's the bride in the parable? Well, it's it's us. Right. It's the church. And so you have the bridegroom returning to the home of the bride, to her father's house where she lives under his authority. And in the first century, you had the bri- essentially bridesmaids, which in this case are described as the virgins, young women. Right. And they are waiting with all of their torches and all of their fanfare for this great welcome where they are going to um, make this a big event. Because when you had a wedding in first century, particularly in these tiny little Galilean towns or, or wherever – you know, all through Israel, really, it was a major ordeal. The whole town came out. They celebrated every night for, you know, oftentimes a week. And so when the bridegroom shows up at the bride's house to to marry her and to receive her hand from the father, it was expected to be a big, big spectacle. Mm-hmm. And then he would marry her and take her home, like you said, take back to the place that he has prepared for her. And then they would have a week-long feast. You know, and in the book of Revelation, when it describes the wedding feast, when Jesus is going to you know, bring his bride all together, 
Um, mm-hmm. It is. It's like it's like this enormous, huge celebration. It's this this joyous occasion, and and Jesus started referring to himself as the bridegroom. Um, well, before I mean, if I remember um, a few couple weeks ago, I lose track of time. Boy, these sermon, these uh, the messages, <laughs> the topics all run together. But we had that topic where I was talking about the fact that there was a little bit of sort of fraternal competition between the disciples of Jesus and the disciples of John, and there was the one where they, you know, Jesus was kind of taunted a little bit regarding his disciples being able to eat and drink when John's disciples were fasting and praying. Mm-hmm. And in that, and Jesus's response in Matthew 9 was to say that, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? It's like, it's like Jesus mm-hmm. was referring to himself even then as the bridegroom. Um, so very definitely, this is a, a, a parable, a story then about that second coming. It's about mm-hmm. the end of the age, the end of the time. Uh, that we live in. So this is the culmination of things. Yeah, and and it's wild. The whole story is kind of building up to this great marriage feast. Even from the beginning, I was talking about this morning in our men's breakfast, but even from the beginning, when you look at Genesis chapter 1, there are there's a phrase that's repeated 10 times, even at the beginning of creation. And it's this. So when God creates the plants, he'll just keep saying, according to their kind, according to their kind. When he creates the fish, you'll read that and you'll, you'll see it repeated. According to their kinds, according to their kinds. He gets to the birds and they're created according to their kinds, according to their kinds. And then the animals, according to their kinds, according to their kinds. And it, ten times it repeats that. And it's drilling it into your mind as you read it. You're kind of getting annoyed by the expression, right? And what it means is he's making them together with their pair. He's making them together for their mates. They're made in their own kind to be with one another. And then when you get to verse 26 of chapter 1 in Genesis, God doesn't change the subject and he doesn't change necessarily the theme when he says, let us make man in our image. And there's a sense in which he's saying, okay, I've created all of these beings in their own kinds to be with and to fellowship and to, to reproduce and to mate and all that other stuff according to their kinds. And when he makes man, what does he do? He's not changing the subject. What mm-hmm. he's saying is we're going to create man set apart absolutely set apart to be in special relationship with me. We're going to make man in our image. And you want to fill it in and say, according to his kind. And so even out of that very first chapter of Genesis, you're given the notion that God has created humanity. He's created you with ears to hear this message. And the point of the scriptures is God is setting you aside to be in special relationship with him. And we do a great disservice when we read the scriptures and we treat God like he's this cosmic, distant God who's just up there calling strikes and balls and determining where the good people and bad people go. That is not the point of the scriptures. That's not the story of the scriptures. This is the story of a God who has created humanity to be set apart, to be in a special intense relationship with him that is so profound and so intimate and so special that the closest analogy that he can give to us to wrap our minds around it is a wedding. And the fact that Jesus, when he says that he's coming back for us, uses language of a bridegroom. Notice it's not judge, even though he is. It's not Lord or master, which he is. He says, when I come back, I'm coming for my bride. Right. I'm coming with a heart of love. I'm coming with a heart that wants to celebrate. I'm coming with a heart that wants to be with you. This has been the whole story. And you get to passages in Isaiah. This isn't a surprise. The whole Old Testament's been telling the story. I love this passage in Isaiah where it says, you know, just as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so your God rejoices over you. Right. Like, that's the heart of our God. And so you open this parable. Don't let it, you know, just slip past you that that's the heart of the Savior. When he's thinking about his return, when he gets to claim his bride and to glorify her, to be with him forever, man, he's thinking wedding. He's he's excited. This is his eternal bride that he's willing to die for. Don't don't miss that. Mm-hmm. Well, and uh, when John described his vision in Revelation 19, it says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude – 
like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride mm-hmm. has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. It's going to be the mightiest celebration any of us can ever <laughs> imagine. You know, they had weddings in the first century that lasted for a week. I wouldn't be surprised if this one lasted for 10,000 years. <laughs> well, yeah, and it will. Yeah. And it will. And you see, like, how excited he is for that day where he finally gets to see his bride right. free from all the distractions and, and disabilities that come along with sin and all the short-sightedness and all the ways that we mar the world and make a mess of ourselves. Like, he will be far more excited to see us finally free of the yeah. mess of our world and the mess of our own hearts than we can even imagine yeah. what that's going to be. Yeah. You know, he, he found it valuable enough that he was – willing to to joyfully in some sense go to the cross because mm-hmm. he sees what mm-hmm. we will be on that day. Yeah. So that is the the backdrop against which this story is told. Um, so Jesus begins in Matthew chapter 25 verse 1 he says then the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. 5 of them were foolish and 5 were wise. So the first thing that he does is he separates our group of ten virgins into two groups, five foolish, five mm-hmm. wise. Um, and he tells us in verse 3, for when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. So the difference between mm-hmm. the foolish then and the wise among these young women – and. You know, I mean, I understand they're metaphorical women, (laughs) you know, Uh, but the difference between them is that the wise group prepared. Mm -hmm. They were prepared. They knew they were going to have to go wait for the bridegroom. And so they were prepared to go wait for the bridegroom. They took what they needed in order to wait properly for the bridegroom. Yeah. And there's. Behind that, you get a sense of were they excited about it? Yeah, you know, Jesus. Jesus isn't coming, and he's not saying, "Okay, well, the wise people are the you know they're Boy Scouts and they're prepared for any occasion. And those are my people, but yeah. but people that are procrastinators, those people, you know, I don't I don't like them. That's not what he's getting at. Like, you have to kind of see that somebody who's been like has the oil and has their torches ready. What does that mean about them? Man, they have been looking forward to this for so long. It is so special to them. Like they can't wait to see him. This is the event that their heart has been longing for. And they are, man, they are ready to go. They're in, they're invested, they're excited. The other people aren't even ready, which, which goes to show you that, you know, whereas the first group, the wise virgins are, are really passionate about this day. They've been looking forward to this for a long time. The foolish virgins don't have any oil. What does that say about their heart? Yeah. Like, th- this is an oversight. Oh, yeah, yeah he's coming. Uh, <laughs> I, what, what should I do? You know? And, you know, you look at the ancient commentaries about, you know, what's the point of these women that would have been like, you know, bridesmaids to us? When the, the groom came, he came with his own party. So like if you, you'd say the groomsmen or whatever that are coming along with him to go to the bride's house, it, you know, it's so it, – in the second coming, we're told in different places of the scriptures that when Jesus comes, he comes with the saints of heaven. You know, that's, that's kind of like his side of the groomsmen and the mm-hmm. bridal party coming. Right. And he's going to the bride's house. When the, when the bride is then picked up, there's all kinds of references to ancient weddings um, and one of them that I, f- I find really fascinating is that they would say that when the, the groom takes the bride back to her house, she would be put on a sedan chair. Sometimes both of them would be up on the sedan chair. And the point of the, these bridesmaids having torches was that so that they could hold them up. And as they're going through the town in the darkness, the, the light of the torches is just radiating on 
the bridegroom and the bride. It's mm-hmm. it's giving them all glory. It's letting everybody see their beauty. It's it's pointing everybody to this great moment where these two are lifted high and they are on their way to their, you know, in the metaphor, eternal home together yeah. and all glory is shining on them. And so if you have no oil and you can't keep your torch lit, you're saying, I, I see no I don't see this as valuable. I don't want all glory to fall upon the bridegroom and his yeah. bride. Yeah. Um, so it's a statement on the position of their heart more than it is about, you know, they're not ready. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they didn't plan well. Yeah. God likes planners. That's not what it's about. And, you know, and just as a practical matter, right, they see their companions packing their torches also and taking mm-hmm. flasks of oil. <laughs> you know, it's like, mm-hmm. so. I'm just going to say, and I'm going to suggest that it was almost a conscious ignoring. It's like, yeah, 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 whatever. Like you say, they they didn't think it was important, you know, enough. Mm-hmm. So, so in this metaphor, in this picture, um, would you agree that the five wise virgins are representing uh, believers who are ready mm-hmm. to meet the Lord when He returns, and the five foolish? Are, would be representing, you know, just kind of hangers on. Maybe churchgoers, mm-hmm. maybe, maybe not, but just, mm-hmm. you know, that the, that what we're dealing with here, when we separate into wise and foolish, is we're separating them into believers and unbelievers. Mm-hmm. And it, the, the part of this parable that should be a gut check to us is in the very first verse, and, and, you know, Matthew 25, verse one, it says that all 10 of them, took their lamps or torches, and they went out to meet the bridegroom. And if you were outside the home of the bride and you're watching the ten virgins and you show up and you look at them, they all look the same. Right. They all look like they're there to meet the bridegroom. They all show up and they look like, you know, they've got their torches. There they are. But the reality is, and think about this, you know, people in church pews. There's people, you you look inside of a church and you can't tell believer from non-believer just at first glance. You know, sure. everybody looks like they're there because they sincerely want to be. And and by the way, they show up with lamps. Right. They went to meet the bridegroom. But even inside churches, you have people who sincerely at the at their gut level and every part of them is sincerely looking to Jesus as their ultimate hope. They worship him. They've surrendered to him. They have faith and trust that he is their salvation. And let's let's be honest, there's a lot of people that show up on Sundays and they're going through the motions. You know, they're like you said, they're 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 hangers on, but inside their heart there's no regeneration. There's no life. There's no ultimate trust. Jesus is not their treasure. There's, there's no oil. Yeah, you know, there's there's no genuine faith to set their torch ablaze. Mm-hmm. So, verse five, Matthew twenty five five, then tells us that the bridegroom was delayed. It says, as the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and they slept. You know, I, I sort of wonder whether um, that is an acknowledgement, maybe, or a nod to the fact that. This period of time, <laughs> the period of time that it's going to be before the bridegroom goes to pick up his bride and brings her home is going to take longer than you expect. Like I read Thessalonians, for example. The people in Thessalonica thought that they'd missed it, that they'd been left, mm-hmm. that that the Lord had returned somehow and and that they'd been left out. And the same thing was true in the city of Corinth. So – we had people even back in that time, just a few years yeah. after Jesus, you know, died on the cross and ascended, very, very early, thinking this is going to happen right now. And here mm-hmm. we are, you know, two thousand plus years later, and and it still hasn't happened. So the bridegroom has been delayed, but you know, I think of the, I think of the two verses in. First Peter, uh, Second Peter, rather. Uh, I, I put them in personal worship this week. Second uh, Peter three four and then verse nine um, says they they will say, "Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation." Skeptics, we hear them everywhere. But then verse nine it says, "The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you." 
not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So we see this delay, you know, these, this, this tremendous length of time that it's been since Jesus walked the earth, you know, since the bridegroom left for a while. Um, and although, yes, he's been delayed, this is, this is God's mercy. You know, it's like mm-hmm. God, you know, God is not going to bring this to a close until all of his elect have been brought in. Mm-hmm. And and praise God for that. Yeah, I'm. I still got lots of people I'm praying for. You right. know, I'd be I'd be thrilled if he showed up right now. But I would sure like to see him move in in the hearts of a number of people still. And he's merciful enough to do that. You know, and it's you know the thing is when it when it talks about the bridegroom being delayed and so they become drowsy and slept. There's there's something to that where faith is really hard. It, it it's it takes discipline and work to to continue putting Jesus and his kingdom, you know, right at the forefront of your mind and living for that because there's there's, you know, as I've heard before, there's wolves closer to the sled and and there's like, you know, life goes on and all of a sudden you've got to worry about how to pay your mortgage or how your your relationship is going here or there and all the, the normal things of the world come in and before you know it, you're not thinking about the bridegroom's return anymore. You're not thinking about your ultimate hope. You're not thinking about heaven. You just – you get your mind caught in the temporal things and, you know, that's – if you read the chapter before this, one of the things that Jesus is talking about continually is you've got to endure, you've got to persevere, you've got to keep watch, you've got to discipline your heart that when all the worldly distractions come, as Paul says, what is it, in Colossians, you know, you've got to put your mind on the things above, um, not on these things below. And it, it takes a discipline to keep, you know, reading about Jesus and remembering his beauty and, rem, you know, reminding yourself of all that you have in him and worshiping him and, and feeling a longing, you know, that you might sense his spirit here and you might celebrate who he is in his word. But man, there's this deep longing in you that someday you're going to see him face to face. And keeping that always in the front of your mind and not letting the world and all of its many, many, many distractions crowd it all away. Mm-hmm. And it's easy. And uh, and you mentioned a couple times now the context coming from Matthew 24. Um, you know, Matthew 24 talks about, you know, that's where you, we have the lesson of the fig tree, Jesus' statement, you know, no one knows the day or the hour. Um, mm-hmm. But – I find the the end of chapter 24 interesting, where Jesus asks the question, Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Like, okay, you're an overseer. I've left you in charge. Uh, the master's going to go on a journey. You're the, you're the servant I feel like I can trust. I'm going to make – these people are going to depend on you, Right. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. And in an hour he does not know, (laughs) this ought to give you some pause, ladies and gentlemen, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, I don't think it means literally dismembering because it does say that he's going to be then further punished, which would be really hard to wait to, you know. There's not going to be <laughs> yeah. much weeping and gnashing of teeth if, in fact, you've been drawn and quartered uh, kind of thing. <laughs> but the point is – But that, you have no leg. Yeah. <laughs> Just a flesh wound. <laughs> Uh, Monty Python. Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Still one of my favorite movies. If you've never watched it, I understand. (laughs) People are like, that's making fun of the church. I'm like, it's making fun of aspects of the church that really probably deserve to be made fun of. Let me just say that. (laughs) Um, So, you know, at any rate, everybody should see Monty Python and the Holy Grail at least once. because then you'll understand Sam and I referencing the you know uh, the killer bunny and the holy hand grenade of Antioch and brave <laughs> Sir Robin and all these other <laughs> things from that movie. 
Anyway, I love Braves and Robin. Uh, but the but the the thing here that I wanted to bring out is just that you know Jesus is concerned. Obviously, it's it's he wants to communicate clearly that when there is this delay, that you should you know this is not an excuse for you to go out and and party. You know, don't mm-hmm. give up. Um, so I I did read in some commentaries that. This they all became drowsy and slept. Talking about our our ten virgins, that that was kind of a a negative sort of thing. They made reference to the uh, the garden where Jesus got upset when he came back from praying, and the disciples were all asleep. And he's like, "Could you not watch with me for even one hour?" Sort of thing. Um, and I think there is something to that. You know, Jesus doesn't he's- want them to fall asleep. Yeah, and he even acknowledges the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Right. So it's like I know I know you love me, you just don't have what it takes to walk through this with me. So, um, and I think there's some of that. Like, yeah. there's a it's a recognition that we're weak. We're we're gonna sleep. All I th- of us. Yeah, I think it's sleep. part of it's part of a mercy. You know, he's being merciful there. He's like mm-hmm. when he tells the story, he tells the story that. You know, when the bridegroom is delayed, because the bridegroom will be delayed, because the bridegroom knows that when he comes for the bride, that's it. There's no more bride to be found, and he doesn't want to do that because he's patient and loving until all who are chosen to be there at the feast are ready to come to the feast. You know, it's like he doesn't mm-hmm. he doesn't want to come early. He doesn't want to admit, you know, he's not going to leave anyone behind. There was a there was a uh, you know series of movies a few years ago and books the Left Behind series, uh, kind of about the the rapture of the church, which is a, uh, a you know a dispensational premillennial kind of thing. Which I I was a great rapture guy. I talked about that in the in the personal worship this week uh, because Jesus said no one knows the day or the hour, and I recounted a story where I was writing in the margin of my Bible. I knew. I knew when we were out of here, and that was forty years ago last year. That it would have, that it would have, we would have been out of here forty years ago. So, needless to say, the date setting was not wise, and I've modified my views of uh, of eschatology since those days. But the point is that there's been that Jesus is acknowledging that it's going to take longer than you wish it would. And there's not one conversation you and I have, Sam, about anything that's in the news today that does not end with one or the other of us going, man, come Lord Jesus. It's come true. Lord Jesus. It's true. You know, you know and, and to the point, the previous parable, which kind of brings in the whole point of what Jesus is getting at here, is in that delaying, we can become very preoccupied with ourselves. And we start thinking, you know, our whole universe really is – how we manage our own money and what we how we prepare for retirement and you know look at look at the value of my house now and sure. you know you start forgetting the eternal things and you put your mind on all this stuff that's temporal that when he comes back is just going to kind of you know melt away right. it's, this is not eternal stuff and what Jesus is saying you know in the previous parable that you just read a moment ago is look like you're just a steward He's coming back, and he's going to expect an account of all of you. And just because he's delayed and you don't see him, and it's like, you know, he seems to be taking an awful long time. I'm just going to live how I want to live with the resources he's given me. And you forget, no, 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 it all belongs to him. Right. We're just stewards. We are absolutely just stewards. And so if we start living like, you know what? The vineyard belongs to me. Look at all the stuff that he's left. I'm going to take advantage of it for my own ends. Right. It's that's not going to go well for you. No. You need to keep your eyes on eternity. There will be weeping and gnashing. <laughs> it's not mm-hmm. you don't want to be found eating and drinking with the drunkards when he comes back. You want to be found mm-hmm. being faithful. Um, yep. So the the uh, you know our virgins are are sleeping next to their torches. And verse 6 of Matthew 25, uh, it says, But at midnight there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Verse 7, Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. Verse 8, And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil. And this is a very, very sad – there's a couple of sad statements here in a row. And this is one of them. For our lamps are going out. Um, You know – we were talking about this before we got started recording, and you know, I said 
there is no such thing as proximity salvation. You know, it's like mm-hmm. um, the gospel is is extended to each of us, and each of us must respond for ourselves. I can't believe for you. You can't believe mm-hmm. for me. I can't believe for my children. I can. I can raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. I can pray for them. I can, I can, you know, witness to them. I can, I, I, we can bring them the gospel constantly, but I can't believe for anyone else. You know, we all have to mm-hmm. do that on our own. And I know that there's, uh, because I was sort of raised in a, in a world in which I thought I was a Christian. Uh, a church-going kid, right, thought that I was a Christian because I went to church and hung around my family and we all went to church. We were we were Christians, mm-hmm. right? I was around Christians all the time. I went to Christian camps and I went to Christian meetings. And so I must be a Christian because I'm always around Christians. And yet, despite all of that, despite all of my years as an acolyte and going through confirmation class and memorizing big parts of the catechisms, there was still that day when somebody handed me a gospel tract and that asked the question, am I going to heaven? And I answered that question incorrectly. And then, you know, when the God, when he shared the gospel with me and, and I recognized that salvation by faith alone, that it didn't depend on me or who I hung around with, you know, that when I had that, that belief for myself, you know, mm-hmm. that, was a big change in my life. So, so this situation here, it's like these foolish virgins, they're the ones that have been hanging around and all of a sudden the bridegroom's here and suddenly they realize I should have taken care of business. And that's just mm-hmm. such a sad picture to me. I'm like, now, 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 now is the time for mm-hmm. you to respond to the gospel. Yeah, and it, you you read through the commentaries on what this oil represents, and you know for a lot of a lot of these parables, there's as many different views as there are commentaries. Haven't you noticed you that know? that has really been the story of this message series from the side <laughs> of us who prepare? It's been how many different interpretations of the parable are there? Well, how many different commentaries do you have? <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, most of the time, they're fairly minor nuances about whether it's torches or lamps or, you know, but at the end of it, what what I think you you and I agree on is this oil, you know, what's the purpose of oil with a torch? I mean, if you try to light a, a torch or a wick and it doesn't have oil and it does light, it will consume the torch quickly. It'll consume the wick quickly if right. it will light even at all. You know, most of these things are made out of things that aren't meant to burn on their own. The oil is what allows it to persevere. It's what allows it to endure, right? It's it's not actually the torch that you see burning so much as it is the oil that is soaked in the torch that allows it to burn for hours. Right. And so by metaphor, you know, if you like I said, if you read through Matthew 24, it's all about endurance. It's all about, you know, the love of many are going to grow cold, but he who endures to the end will be saved. So that oil is it's faith. It's it's, you know, the power of the spirit to persevere in you that allows you to burn brightly. And so what the what you see here is you have the wise virgins who are like, oh my gosh, he's here, he's here. This is the moment we've been waiting for. They break out the oil there, and they're going to burn. They're going to they're going to make it through the whole thing, mm-hmm. not not because of their torch, but because of the oil that is enabling their torch to blaze through this whole ceremony. Whereas the other ones, their lamps are going out. They yeah. they have nothing that can cause them to shine, and you know. Uh, that's us. You know, we don't have anything of ourselves that just shines. And if we try, you know, using the metaphor, if I if I'm trying to to bring glory to God and I'm trying to shine on him and his bride for this moment, well how do you do that? You yeah. do that by faith. Sure. You do that by clinging to him. You do that through worship. You do that through all these things. But if you don't have the oil, the faithfulness, that that rich faith in you, the, where the Spirit of God just inhabits your praises and your faith, you cannot shine. Yeah. It is absolutely impossible. Yeah. Um, and you see that when we get to the end of the parable, Jesus explains the difference between those who shine and those who don't. Yeah. It's the fact of their awareness at that moment. The, the five foolish virgins Oof. are suddenly aware, I've messed up. You know, mm-hmm. I hear the cry, I see the bridegroom, and I know 
I'm not ready to meet him. I don't have mm-hmm. that short that torch to shine on him. You know, and it's it's there's there's a old saying among evangelists that I've heard year from years years ago, you know, there are no unbelievers in hell. Um just those that believed too late. You know, it's like that idea that you know, there's a point at which we're all going to know the truth of this. We're going to be confronted inescapably and undeniably by the truth. When the cry goes out and the bridegroom is there, that's not the point to be going, oh, crap, what did Sam say I was supposed to do? What did the pastor say at church on Sunday? Mm-hmm. No, no, you need to already have that oil with you. You need to be ready to meet the bridegroom. And the response of the wise virgins here in verse 9 says, But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. I can't believe for you. This is my oil. I can't mm-hmm. give you my oil. Go take care of this yourself. Well, what does that mean? That means that when the bridegroom arrives, those that are prepared to meet the bridegroom, Sam, can be focused on him. Mm-hmm. The ones that aren't prepared are focused on what they don't have. Where's the oil? My torch is is going out. It's like they're focused on everything except the bridegroom. Mm -hmm. And those that are prepared are like, there's the bridegroom. That's what I've been waiting for. I I don't have to pay attention to anything else. And you got to think, like, at that point, the wise virgins are saying, you know, my whole role in this is I want my torch to shine through this whole procession so that it gives the most glory, the most shining to this bridegroom and his bride. And if we split it up, we won't make it all the way home and it will make this wedding into a farce. It, you know, it'll all go dark and I'm not willing to do that because I want to bring him glory. So you've got to go get your own. Otherwise, we risk everything. You know, falling apart. And so their concern is in honoring the bridegroom at that point. You know, their concern is honoring the bride at that point. And it really is at that point, you know, all the other people are are left to fend for themselves. And this parable and the metaphor, like you said, another person's salvation, another person's oil cannot save you. Right. So verse 10, and while they were going to buy, I mean, they ran off, you know, trying to take care of their lack, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also. So the five that were unprepared took care of their business, they thought, and came saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, and this is, I said there were two sad, really, really sad things. The first is our torches are going out. And the second is this, but he answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. You know, that's, there's, today as we sit here talking, there's still time. You know, mm-hmm. as you're listening to this podcast, there is still time. Those people that, that you know that need to hear and need to receive and believe the gospel, there is still time. Preach the gospel. Pray for them. You know, it's like there is, mm-hmm. yeah, that's the good news. Here's the good news. There's still time. We're not out of time yet. But mm-hmm. Jesus wants us to know that someday there will be. No more time. And the people that are like, I believe now. I, I, no, 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 I believe now. It's like, no. When the marriage feast has begun, when that door is shut, there's no more time. That's it. And that's just, you know, it's like that's that's the only thing that keeps me from becoming, because mind you, this was the kind of stuff that was laid on me when I was, in that sort of non-denominational evangelicalism, and I'm sure you've been there, Sam, because you've been part of mm-hmm. those. What's laid on you is there's going to be blood on your hands, Samuel, if you're not out there preaching the gospel. You know, it's like these, and you were made to feel guilty about mm-hmm. those people that would be left, that would be outside. Mm-hmm. I don't know you. As someone who believes that God you know, I'm a monergist. God, it's salvation is God's work from beginning to end. He has, he has chosen and will effectually call those who are his elect. And 
I believe that he's going to bring all of those in and I believe that he is good and I believe that he is kind and I believe that he is right. And that's the only thing that keeps my head from exploding when I think about those people standing outside that shut door is to believe that God in his grace and his kindness and his mercy is going to bring all of his elect in and I am just, you know, we've still got time, but someday there won't be. Yeah, the the thing of this that's that's helpful, you know, because you can you can moralize a lot of this parable. Mm-hmm. Oh, you know, these people prepared and these people didn't, and you know, these people you know didn't really think through what they were doing. They were irresponsible or unwise. At the bottom of it, Jesus gives you the interpretive key. You know, this this passage where he says, "Truly, I say to you, I do not know you." That's the reason why they're not allowed in. Right. It's not some petty reason that they didn't have oil or, you know, it's when when they didn't have the oil, when they didn't see his coming as something precious enough to prepare for. What does that mean? I mean, what Jesus is telling you in this parable and all parables kind of fall short of perfection sure. and sure. explaining things. What he's saying is you never really came to know me. Right. Like that's that's the deal. Like if if you had known me, if you had come to me, if you had gotten to know me, you like the wise virgins would have been longing for me to come. Do you know what I offer? Do you know the freedom that I offer you from all the idols and the slaveries that you chase in this life? Do you know the infinite inheritance that I offer to you? Do you know what it cost me? Do you know the measure of my love that I would go to a cross for you? Like here he is saying, I, all of this is available to you, and they're not turned away from the wedding because they you know, literally don't have oil. They're turned away because they didn't know him. Right. And so that becomes the key. How do you get oil? Well, here's the good news. You don't even have to go to the markets and buy it. Nope. Do you know how you get oil? You get to know him, and he gives it to you freely. And when you get to know him, you will not be able but to help shine. You'll fall in love with him because when you get to know the true Jesus and what he offers, man, your love for him and your worship toward him, when you realize how sweet he is, it's irresistible, and you will begin to shine the oil of faith or whatever you want to put it, begins to burn in you, and you will glorify him on that day. When you see him come, you will just shine with absolute joy and delight that your bridegroom is finally coming. The reason for which you were made is coming to fulfillment, and all the sin, and all the pain, and all the heartache, and all the death, and everything else that makes life in this earth so hard and miserable is about to be wiped away the moment he comes onto the scene, do you realize who it is that you're inheriting forever? Do you realize that he says, I'm giving you permission to call me your own forever? All of my goodness, all of my infinite attributes are yours, and you get to share in my glory. Like, Man, we have this incredible promise, and the more you think about it, and the more you think about the fact that you get him above all the other promises, that he says, I'm yours. I'm absolutely yours. That will make you shine, and it's absolutely free. Take the oil while he offers it. Get to know him, and he will never, ever, ever turn you away. Mm Mm-hmm. So Jesus finishes up in verse 13. He says, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Um, you know, back in, in chapter 24, Jesus said that he himself didn't know. Even the son didn't know the mm-hmm. day or the hour. Um, yeah, I've had people ask me about that, that saying that where Jesus said that. And I have said that, you know, that Jesus – chose to limit himself in certain respects in his mm-hmm. humanity. And so I don't believe that that was – I don't believe that Jesus was teasing. I don't believe that he was – You know, I do believe that, that when he said that, he's like, I don't even know. Not The mm-hmm. angels don't know. The Father knows. Um, now, does Jesus know today? I don't know. Yeah, maybe. Sure. Yes. I, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I'll answer that. Yes. Okay, yes, he knows today. <laughs> but but in his humanity, and that's an interesting thing because, you know, uh, 
going back into – I've been saying I've been really kind of getting into studying some church history of late. I've really been enjoying reading the Church Fathers and reading History of the Reformation and just reading things about the church going back hundreds of years. And language has changed a lot. Um, but <laughs> but when when those theologians, you know, a thousand years ago would describe – the state of Jesus as a human, how Jesus lowered himself to be, the Bible tells us, a little lower than the angels. He he gave up his equality with God temporarily to come tabernacle with us. They referred to it as his humiliation. You ever heard that? I've heard that mm-hmm. they talk about yeah. the humiliation of Jesus. And it doesn't mean like humiliation, like we would say humiliation, like we're going to go, Jesus, you were ugly. You were – no, but it's this it's, – it's humble – it's talking about humility. His humility mm-hmm. to such an extreme level that they refer to it as the humiliation, referring to his – and in his humility, he had restricted himself to the point that, that he himself didn't even know you know, the day or the hour. But he really and, – and that doesn't mean, by the way, I've heard, I've heard other preachers say, you can't know the day or the hour, but that doesn't mean you can't know the month or the year. Yes, it does. <laughs> Gosh, I've never, I haven't heard that one. Oh, well, you've been in the wrong churches. I have heard that statement come out of the preacher's <laughs> mouth. Just because Jesus says you can't know the day or the hour doesn't mean we can't know the 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 date or the year or the month. So I'm like, yes, it does. It's exactly wow. what it means. It means we <laughs> don't know. You know, um, but I think that that's the, you know, that's kind of what we wind up with is that. You know, we're in that predicament where how do we live? You know, how do we take this parable going forward? You know, the first thing is it's a gut check for us, right? It's like check your own heart. Are you prepared? Mm -hmm. Do you have that oil? Are you ready to lift that torch high so that the glory shines on the bridegroom when you hear the cry? Are you ready for that? Do you get a little excited, you know, Mm -hmm. when you think about Jesus returning? I mean, when you were talking about it before – I just kind of let myself imagine it. And I had that little elevator stomach moment where I was like, it's going to be kind of exciting, Sam. It's like, <laughs> it's like I get a little excited. I'm like, I don't know what it's going to exactly be like, but I'm ready for it to happen. Well, because of that, I'm ready for it to happen. I don't worry about when it is. You know? Mm-hmm. Now, I, now, that being said, I do – I'm grateful for God's patience. Like you, there are people that I am praying for, that I am hoping for, that I want to see, you know, receive the gospel and respond to the gospel. And I continue to pray for God's, you know, effectual calling on their life. And, and, and so I want there to be some time left. But for me, I'm ready. Whenever he shows up, I'm ready. So <clears throat> there's a, there was another thing that, that there used to be on the little sticky notes on the pastor of the church that I went to. He used to have the little sticky notes on his desk. And one of them was plan like he's never coming back. Live like he's going to return tomorrow. And that's not a bad statement, honestly. You know, hmm. I make my plans as if he's that his patience is going forever. Like I make my long-term plans. I don't, I'm not going to stand around in my backyard, sell my house, bury my money in a, in a coffee can and stand in my backyard and look up. I'm not going to do that. I'm making my plans. I'm planning for my retirement, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. But on my day to day life, when I do, I let an opportunity to to share the gospel with a loved one or a friend pass me by. I try not to because I live like it's over tomorrow, or that's my goal anyway. Um, and I don't think that's a bad way to live. Mm, I. I- I think I agree with that. I need to think on that statement, but the heart of it, I absolutely agree with. You know, the the reality is, is God has given us this time to to live in light of what's coming. Right. You know, Lewis said, you know, a brilliant comment. He says, you know, that we should live with our eyes fixed on heaven. And when he's talking about, you know, the usefulness of man, he says, you know, it's since man has stopped thinking about the world to be, to come that we've become so ineffective in this one. Mm. And man, I, I look around That's at true. this world. That is Dude, true, man, isn't it? That is so true. When, you know, you go back to even just basic philosophy, like if men have no hope beyond this world yeah. and they have no fear of consequences beyond this world – 
and you see how men begin to treat one another and how the world devolves. I mean, just even from purely selfish standpoints, like you, we need to have our eyes fixed on something else. And again, uh, one of Lewis's quotes is every single one of us has a heart that instinctively rejects this world. Like we, we all recognize that we're made for something more. And, you know, and Lewis's quote, I don't know exactly what it is, but he's like, you know, birds are made with instincts to fly. Fish are made with instincts to swim. Humans are, you know, nursing infants come out of the womb and they, they're ready to nurse by instinct. And inside of all human beings, there's this instinct that there has to be something better than this world because it doesn't satisfy our instinctive needs. And he says, perhaps this is evidence that we were made for another world. And I absolutely believe that. And here you have Christ lifting up the hope of heaven and eternity with him and all of his goodness. And it's like, you know, like God does give us the ability to plan and retire and to do all these things in this world. But the bride, the bride, the the virgin, the the servant, how whichever parable you want to throw out, <laughs> is always thinking. I want to use every bit of my stewardship here to make sure that this world has the brilliant hope of what's to come. Mm-hmm. I want to lift up His kingdom not my own. And so everything that he gives me is not my possession to live as though I'm here 80 years and out. He gives me these possessions to help me prepare the world around me for the eternity to come. Mm -hmm. That needs to be when we look at what we have in this world and Jesus calls us to keep watch, right? How can I, in the brief time that I have here, in the 80 years that I have here, how can I make the biggest splash for eternity that's going to matter for eternity? Because if I live just for this world, I get this world that's gone. I do hope that people, you know, that as as they reflect on the parable this week, I do hope that they understand just this this idea of Jesus wanting us to be ready to be prepared to to have our own hearts in order to be ready for his return that when he comes we don't want to have to worry about anything else you know we just want to be able to lift our torches high so that all the light shines on him um, amen you know that's the deal well, we hope that you've enjoyed your time with us, folks, that it has been profitable for you. Uh, we have enjoyed the conversation. <laughs> Sometimes, Sam, we just do these for ourselves. You know, it's like uh, – but hey, I've told several people if nobody listened, I would still want to do this. Yeah, you know, it's a good conversation. But hopefully you've, you have listened and you have profited from it, benefited from it in some way. Um, if you'd like to correspond with us, we have an email address uh, set up. It's called – it's out of water. Uh, at riovistachurch.com. That's R-I-O-Vistachurch.com. Uh, that's also where you can find all the back episodes of the Out of Water podcast at riovistachurch.com forward slash out of water. Um, you can also find the podcast on Apple Podcasts, on Google Podcasts, or on Spotify, or in our free Rio Vista Church smartphone app where you can find out everything that's going on around our church. You can get that for your iOS or your Android device. Just check in your app stores. It is available for free. Sam and I will return next week with yet another in the series, He Gave Us Stories, and we look forward to seeing you then. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater.